Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Today on show number 90, we explore turning our lawns into gardens and food forests. My guest today is Heather Jo Flores, one of the co-founders of the radical organization Food Not Lawns. And when we think of radical, we think maybe a little bit dangerous and a little bit scary and a little bit confrontational. And we'll talk with Heather Jo about her transition from that kind of activist politics to the kind of radicalism that comes from self-reliance, from growing our own food and from forming real communities. So Heather Jo came of age in an addicted, abusive and estranged family in the slums of L.A. in the 80s. And she is an unlikely leader of an environmental movement. The environmental movement tends to be elite, upper class, um, certainly people with means and money. And Heather Jo coming from the slums and finding her way to activism via Greenpeace, via another organization called Food Not Bombs, and co-founding, and then about 10 years ago, writing a book, Food Not Lawns, that really sparked a movement. Now, when we think about converting our suburban lawns into gardens, yeah, we have a lot of problems with it. There's a lot of ordinances and laws and angry neighbors, but it's a concept that people have heard of, and it's a concept that's spreading. But when back in 2006, when Food Not Lawns was first published, almost no one was thinking of that. And what really appeals to me is that it is such an elegant solution to so, so many problems. So to find out more about that, let's talk to Heather Jo Flores. So without any further ado, Heather Jo Flores, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Hi, Howard. How are you? Really good. Very excited about this conversation. Um, so... You wrote Food Not Lawns, what, about nine, ten years ago? Yeah, it was published in late 2006, so it was uh, about eight and a half years ago. Right. And, and, and at the time, it really was a kind of a revolutionary concept that people hadn't heard about. It, it was a kind of a, a head-scratcher. And in the last decade, it's, it's really, the idea at least, has gone mainstream, hasn't it? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I, w I would like to have a, a little bit of credit for that. I mean, when we first um, when we first started Food Not Lawns in 1999, um, I, well, at that point, you know, the Internet, I guess, had been invented but wasn't really accessible. And uh, I remember before Google was invented, Yahoo's first uh, search engine came up, and I immediately typed in Food Not Lawns, you know, and got two hits. <laughs> And it was uh, it was us and Eugene. And there was a newspaper article about us, and then there was a group in um, in Montreal that had uh, that had made a joke about it on on a on a um, like an AOL thing, you know. So that was that. And then when the book came out in 2006, you know, I mean, I'm regularly searching the search term because it's kind of my thing. But when the book came out in 2006, I um, did a search, you know, for it, and you know, we were up to like uh, 1,100 hits you know, most of which were related to the book launch. But then the other day I searched it and there were 4 million hits, which not at all completely all about us. I mean, a lot of them were, but um, a lot of them were just people all over the world, you know, getting on board. So that's pretty exciting. Right. Well, you know, you, you promoted, but you also tapped into something that's just, in, in some ways it's revolutionary. In other ways, it's it's very conservative. It's, it's going back to... Yeah something extremely obvious. 
Yeah, I mean, it should be obvious that, that we should use the land that we've worked so hard to pay for to grow food, you know, but really that's not, um, it's not the case in, in most of, you know, mainstream culture. I mean, this is starting to bleed through, but people are having a lot of problems with, like, their neighborhood association or their city, you know, they're actually getting in trouble with the law for growing food. So I find that really interesting, too. Yeah, I saw your recent Facebook post about the the family in Florida that uh, I guess won won a battle to to be allowed to grow food on their own lawn. You said maybe we should change our name to food food not laws. Yeah, I know because well somebody uh, somebody typoed that on their on her flyer the other day. She had me proofread her flyer for her seed swap that she's organizing. It's one of the new new local chapters in Kansas and. And I, I was like, the flyer looks great, except it says food, not laws. And then we both started kind of riffing on that and thinking that was really actually quite clever. And uh, and especially considering that a lot of people have really, you know, had to fight. It's cost them, cost them a lot of money for lawyers and, you know, they've risked jail time and eviction and all of these things just because they wanted to have some food out front. Right. Well, so let's we'll, we'll, we'll get into that and we'll get into the fact that growing food on your lawn is far a bigger issue than growing food on your lawn. Um, but I want, I want to start kind of with getting a sense of, of you and you, you write very movingly in the book about your own story and your own childhood. And I wonder if you kind of give, give us a, uh, a, a brief sense of your backstory and how you got to, to be interested and active in this movement. Okay, sure. I, um, <laughs> Well, I grew up kind of on the road. You know, my mom was a bit of a, a groupie, I guess. Not in not in the real negative connotation that might come up for people when they hear that, but she just liked to travel with bands. And um and you know, we had a lot of friends and relatives that were musicians and so we were traveling a lot and um and then later, you know, after she had my sister, there was, you know, she now had two kids to take care of and it was a little bit harder to do that. But we were extremely low income. So we um we just moved around a lot and we lived in, in cities usually, or sometimes we'd live in the van or we'd share an apartment with like another single mother and, and we never had access to any garden space. And we actually ate a lot of, um, what, you know, what is commonly referred to as road food, which is just, you know, cans of beans and boxes of macaroni. And I really never, um, I really never even saw a fresh vegetable until I was, uh, you know, out on my own. I left home very young. I was 15. And then uh, I moved in actually with a bunch of musicians and, and they had, um, they had been raised with more of a wholesome diet. So at that point I started getting exposed to, you know, vegetables and fresh cooking. And, and then I was sort of running with like a a punk rock culture basically, and uh, ended up getting a job canvassing for Greenpeace when I was 21 and, uh, and kind of took to that. It took to the activist community and at that point became a vegetarian and started getting involved in environmental issues and uh, was actually quite good at canvassing, to my surprise, and ended up becoming a manager and transferring to the Portland Greenpeace office and getting really involved in the forest activist community there. And um, and then in 1996, I, um, I took off and went hitchhiking around Europe for a few months and and that really expanded, you know, my consciousness about what you know, what's really going on in America regarding the environment and interacting with all these Europeans who are like, what are you doing traveling? You need to, be, you need to go home to Oregon and, and defend the forest, you know? And so I did, and I uh, got really involved in uh, in Earth First and was involved in the, you know, the 19, the mid-90s uh, forest campaigns that were going on all over Oregon and Northern California. And 
um, the Headwaters Forest campaign uh, in the Redwoods. And and then from there, got drawn into the kitchen. I was just, you know, a lot of the direct action, the tree sitting and the road blockades, that stuff was, you know, very exciting, but it was a little too intense for me. And, uh, and I was more at home in the kitchen, like at base camp and just helping with the food. And um, I ended up settling down in Eugene uh, with a boyfriend in uh, 1990. I mean, I was in and out of Eugene in 96, 97, but we ended up renting a house in 98 and starting up the local, reviving the local Food Not Bombs chapter. And we were cooking five days a week and really having this community that was all about food. And from there, that's where Food Not Lawns sprung was, uh, you know, we started growing a garden and we wanted to, to supply our, our Food Not Bombs kitchen with fresh produce. And then the Food Not Bombs thing just kind of took over. You know, we started hosting workshops in our garden and um, everything everything went from there. So there's the short version. <laughs> yes, there's, there's a few things that kind of jump out at me. One is when I think of the the mainstream environmental movement, um, I think of uh, people of privilege, right? And it's true. And you know, your your background is very different from from the people that I know who kind of got interested in the environment as I don't know a, a nice to have or or some sort of um, sort of higher concept. How how did how did you take? To... Oh, excuse me. Great big sneeze. Bless you. See, we're talking about lawns. That's what happens. Um, how, how did you how did you take to the environmental movement, especially, you know, Greenpeace, I think of as kind of a, a very, very mainstream. Uh, maybe it wasn't in the uh-huh. way. What, 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 what were the yeah. things that, that attracted you and maybe put you off coming from the background <laughs> that you did? Yeah, well, I did eventually sort of defect from Greenpeace, um, not to like not that this in any way reflects on Greenpeace as a whole organization. I think it's important to realize that there's like Greenpeace USA, which is like the central main office. And then there's all these um, canvas offices that are all over the world, basically. And, and they, each canvas office is its own little community, you know, and within every community, regardless of, of what it's based on, there are a lot of different kinds of dynamics, you know? So you have like the people who are really um, communicative and kind and, and open-minded. And then you have like the, the, you know, kind of jerk off sexist guy, you know, who just kind of can ruin it for everyone. And, and then you have, you know, people come and go and there was a lot of turnover in our office. So I was exposed to a lot of different dynamics in that. But I mean, what attracted me to it was that I just needed a job. You know, I was like penniless and homeless and 21 years old on the streets of San Francisco. And it was like, Oh, uh, you know, I was actually, I don't know if I should say this in the podcast, but I'll just throw it out there. I was thinking about becoming a stripper, which I had never done. And all my girlfriends were doing that, you know, because that's what young ladies do who come from, you know, who have no education and come from, you know, homes with no money. And I was talking to a friend about it and she said, no, no, don't be a stripper. Get a job at Greenpeace. They'll hire anyone. So I did. And I went down to the canvas office and indeed they hired me and they sent me out into the neighborhoods and, uh, you know, taught me basic information, which I was clueless, you know, but they taught me about toxics and fisheries and breast cancer and chlorine and, and, uh, you know, and then I sort of took off from there and I just found that I really enjoyed talking to people about this stuff and hearing what they thought about it and telling them what I was learning and, and just, you know, learning about what was really going on in the big picture because I had lived, you know, so isolated as a as a, as a youth, you know, it was just like mm. this kind of music culture, and that was really all I knew. 
And you you were canvassing for for memberships and donations. Yep, yep, door to door for three years. Yep. So, and from twenty one to twenty four, basically. And what what about um, food not bombs? Can you t- tell tell us a little bit about what that what you were doing, what that yeah. stood for? Yeah, food not bombs is like the opposite of Greenpeace, as far as mainstream or you know the type of community that it attracts. <clears throat> so uh, the basic premise of food not bombs is to glean surplus um, food out of um, you know from behind the health food store, basically, you know, and we we had relationships with health food stores and farms who would give us their surplus food they were going to throw away. And then we would, um, you know, get these boxes and boxes of produce and bring them back to our house and sort through them and throw out the, the yucky ones. And you know, a lot of that stuff is perfectly good. I mean, we've, we'd get a 25-pound box of avocados, like three of them would be bad or something. But, um, and then we process that all into vegan food, and the reason it's vegan is so that it's inclusive, so that everyone can eat, because, you know, um, most people aren't allergic to vegan food, or they're not, you know, uh, opposed to eating vegetables once in a while. So we'd make vegan food, and we would haul it down to the park and just serve it for free. And, you know, we would we'd make jokes, you know, free food, no religion, or, you know, people didn't have to give us their social security number or their ID or listen to a sermon or anything. We just would feed them, and, and that was that, you know. So that built a huge community, and there was a lot of homeless people. There were a lot of local activists who would come and share food with us. And uh, in our house, you know, being the cookhouse, uh, you know, we had a real thriving community there. Well, so were, were you guys the, the originators of Food Not Bombs, or was that a local chapter no, of an no. existing organization? We were a local chapter, yeah. Uh, so Food Not Bombs started, I think, up in the Northeast, and uh, one of the co-founders is still really like the Food Not Bomb spokesperson today. His name's Keith McHenry. And um, and he's, you know, I became acquainted with him when I first started Food Not Lawns, you know, and we've always, you know, been very transparent about the fact that we were born of Food Not Bombs. And, uh, and so he's still doing the thing. You know, he travels all over the world and starts Food Not Bombs chapters and talks to college kids about sharing food. And he's really on the, on the, the political end of it, too, of how much... Um, you know, sort of a food scarcity is really a political thing. There's no scarcity of food in the world. A lot of it is going to waste, and a lot of it is being is being held back in in certain ways from, you know, the people who really can't afford it. So, what was your um, evolution from food not bombs to wanting to to getting interested in not just feeding but growing? Yeah, well, we, uh, you know, we lived in Eugene, and, you know, the Willamette Valley is some of the most fertile farmland in the world, and um, we had this big lawn, we had this rented house with this big lawn out in front, and then we were getting these donations for food, not bombs, of vegetables, but a lot of times it'd be like, God, I wish we had more garlic, or, you know, I wish we had some fresh cucumbers, and, and then... Uh, I, I mentioned offhand one day that I would like to start a Food Not Lawns garden or Food Not Bombs garden at the time, is what I said. And uh, and one of the women who was at the house was like, oh, well, there's this space that's, that's kind of behind the park that's fenced off that used to be a community garden, but it's just overgrown. You can get there through my backyard. If you want, I'll just let you go through. And uh, so I went and checked it out. And at that same time, there was a young man, a 19-year-old kid named Tobias Kalika, and he had grown up on this huge organic farm in Pennsylvania. And he had just rolled into town and was helping with Food Not Bombs, and he was on board. He was like, let's do this garden thing, you know, and I was just kind of clueless about gardening, so I was like, sure, let's do it, you know. And we went back there and started digging stuff up and moving stuff around, and 
ended up with this thriving, beautiful garden because the soil was so good. You know, it's just really easy to grow stuff back there. And that uh, that really started attracting people. And we actually basically squatted that space. It was a city-owned piece of land. And uh, we were there, you know, illegally for a year before the city kind of caught on to what was going on. You know, I think that the guy who was maintaining the park peeked back, the fence, peeked back through the fence one day and was like, whoa, there's a huge garden back there now, you know. And, and um, huge, and the plants were huge. I mean, the garden space itself was actually quite small. But he um, he got a hold of us, and we were kind of thought we were going to get in trouble. You know, I got a phone call from this guy from the city, and I was like, well, why don't you meet me down there, and, you know, we'll talk about it. And by the time I had finished taking him on the tour, he just, you know, gave me the combination to the gate and dropped off a load of mulch for us. It was just completely on board. So that was pretty cool. Wow. I, I love that the Origins was uh, illegal. I know. I know. It's funny. And meanwhile, we never could convince our landlord to let us rip up the lawn, which was so funny that we, you know, our house was half a block away from this garden. And we'd walk down there every day with like wheelbarrows full of stuff and be, you know, carting stuff back and forth and had this whole thing going on. And and, uh, and our landlord was actually quite cool. Uh, he wasn't some, you know, wicked landlord guy, but he um, he never would let us do the front yard, you know, and we never, because he was so nice to us, we never could really just you know, defy him and rip it up anyway. So it's funny that we had this big lawn in front of our house and we were the food not lawn's house. So, so you, you grew up traveling around punk rock, indigent, in the city, gritty, and all of a sudden you're planting crops, you're putting seeds into the ground. How, what was that like when you started doing it? You said you didn't know anything about it. You had this 19-year-old kind of mentor who was showing you. What did that yeah. do for you sort of intellectually and maybe emotionally and spiritually to start growing things? Yeah, well, it changed everything, you know. I mean, the, just ingesting that much good organic food, it, just, it changes your body, you know. And at the time, I didn't really realize. I mean, now, you know, here it is almost 20 years later, and I've you know, gone through school and gone through graduate school and studied a lot of different things about, you know, the effects of um, of toxins on the body and movement on the body. And But, you know, at the time, I just felt amazing. And, and I, you know, I had to always coped with depression and different sorts of issues that could have come with, you know, having a sort of troubled childhood. And, um <clears throat> And just being being outside all the time, working with the soil, I found that I was learning so fast, like that, I mean, it sounds kind of new agey, but I feel like the plants were actually teaching me stuff, you know, and I guess it's just trial and error, but having that constant connection of my hands in the dirt, uh, I think I put a quote in the book and somebody said it to me once that, uh, that, you know, everything that you need to know about, about gardening is, is free and available. All you have to do is put your hands in the dirt. And it, it was like that. It was like this, this osmosis of knowledge that was flowing into me. And a lot of that kind of radical anarchism, like def- defiance-based uh, activism was was starting to to shift. You know, my, my attitude about that was starting to shift. And I was starting to get really interested in the more proactive activism of of just, uh, well, let's just create this other reality that we want and uh, and see see how that feels instead of constantly trying to oppose something. That's a fascinating shift, and I, I imagine it can be quite subtle at times to because, you know, the, as environmentalists, we, we look at the world and we see so much 
that we can only call evil or terrible or misguided or wrong. And, you know, there can be we we can sort of vacillate between anger and despair. And neither of those emotions or mindsets has any place in a garden. No, I mean, sometimes you do feel some despair when you've got a whole big crop of broccoli and the flea beetles descend from the sky and skeletize it. I mean, that, that happened, you know. I mean, there's there were challenges in that way, and sometimes it can be really overwhelming, you know. But um, but it's, in general, a very positive experience. And I think a lot of that, you know, the defiance and the despair and the anger that comes from being on the front lines, I mean, there's a lot to be angry about, and it, it can be really uh, daunting. I mean, there's there's times where you can look around, I mean, Anybody, you know, listening to this can look around at all the terrible stuff happening in the world and just think, wow, there's no way we're going to win this. You know, there's no way we're ever going to be sustainable. And, uh, but when you're gardening, you know, there's more immediate, immediate needs. It's like, we don't have time to, to be angry right now. We have to get these plants in the ground or we have to get this stuff weeded and we have to get this stuff harvested and, and out to feed people. And it becomes this more, more of a day-to-day quality of life experience as opposed to this kind of big picture despair. You know, I also think a lot of those negative emotions can be really toxic, um, you know, on the self and, and on the body. I mean, you can, you can become really, really bitter, and that, uh, that doesn't help anybody. Right. And I, I found from, from my own limited experience in the, in the garden, and I said limited, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it a lot, but I, I came to it very late in my sort of mid-40s was the first time I ever willingly okay. kind of, you know, touched dirt and was outside doing things. And it, it quickly, it became a, uh, an obsession and an addiction, but it was very foreign to me for, for most of my life. And, you know, the, what, what I notice about myself in the garden is that I feel like it's very, very easy to feel affirmed when when these miracles yeah. are happening all around me like i put a seed in the ground i really my rational mind says there's no way that little thing is going to do anything <laughs> in, in that pile of like right. messy dirt and yet to to see it come up makes me feel like all right i must be on the right track here like in in, in, a, yeah. in a kind of global sense did you have that definitely i mean it's like little miracles every day and and you know you could be a, a total atheist and you still can't deny the fact that you know, a tiny, tiny poppy seed growing into that ridiculous, incredible plant is a total miracle. I mean, it's just like, wow, that was so cool, you know. And we actually started to get, we had a, this, a sustainable horticulture study group that was connected to the Food Not Lawns thing. And uh, and every week we would get together, we would read these different books, you know. And, um, and we read... Um, a lot of different things that came out of like the biodynamic tradition that were about like the spirituality of gardening, essentially, you know, and how really witnessing these miracles of nature all day, every day, really connect you to your, your spirituality, you know, and we were in this group of people who mostly self-identified as atheists or agnostic. We weren't, you know, necessarily a faith-driven community, but the Eugene anarchist community, but, uh, but people were getting pretty, People were getting pretty woo-woo about the plants because it's just—it's undeniable, you know. It's just how it makes you feel and what you're witnessing. Right, and also, you know, there's that uh, that sort of ho- hokey old song about the, uh, you know, the ant and the rubber tree plant. <laughs> you know, sort of, sort of like, you know, make you feel like you can do anything. But when you know, when you're an yeah. environmental activist, and then you see poppy poppy plants grow, you know, yeah. or, or lettuce come out of the ground in uh, late winter. 
like it does give you that feeling like there's much more possible, you know, when you're when you're in tune with those forces. Yeah, and you're eating them, and you're adjusting those forces into you now, and and it's you know the connection becomes very obvious, and and uh, it's I don't know it's it was pretty extraordinary. Those first couple of years, I was kind of evangelical about the garden because I was just so obsessed with it, and it was you know like you're saying you became obsessed and addicted because it's just what a great thing to be addicted to, yeah. <laughs> growing plants, you know. Yeah, I haven't it's, I haven't it's, saw it's treatment. Become, yeah. Yeah. But I think it is important also to not get too obsessed with gardening. And I think that's one thing that is happening to the Food Not Lawns movement a little bit is that uh, the emphasis is on gardening, which is great. Gardening is a great thing to do. And it's not like we invented gardening, you know, and, and I mean, there's victory gardens. I mean, we're an agriculturally based society. But the thing is that uh, for us, Food Not Lawns as a as a movement has is not at all just about gardening. It's really important that the other side of it, that the sharing and the going out into the community and communicating what you're learning and sharing your surplus and bringing people into your garden, that's that's the other side of it. And that's why, you know, the first half of my book, Food Not Lawns, is, is about gardening. And then the second half is about community. There's a chapter on there of, about getting along with people. And there's a chapter in there about doing outreach and publicity because that stuff is, that's what really makes it a movement. You know, if everybody's just growing food in their yard, behind fences, then, you know, there's, that's still sort of a, um, sort of an individualistic kind of capitalist, uh, culture that we're perpetuating, you know, but once we start opening those gates and sharing what we grow, then, then we start to change culture. Yeah. So let's, let's, um, let's start with the, the lawns and the gardening and move and move into the broader, um, questions. Mm -hmm. So. So first question is what's what's wrong with all this suburban lawnage? You know, it's, it was the, the, the bucolic okay. picture of my childhood. I grew up, you know, solidly middle class yeah. in a suburb of Newark, New Jersey. The lawns were it was beautiful. What's what's the yeah. what are we not seeing when we look at lawns everywhere yeah. and think, ah, that's nice. Uh, well, bucolic is definitely the word. It, it is. It's kind of um, it's very soothing, you know, to see this sort of um uniform green landscape, you know, and, but the thing is that, that what we're not seeing is, you know, I mean, we're hearing it every weekend and, you know, actually in the city of Eugene, they just issued a, there's a noise, uh, there's certain laws around the noise, like only a certain amount of people are allowed to mow their lawns at certain time, many times a week because it's so loud and it's actually causing permanent ear damage for people, you know? So, so there's, there's the impact that goes into maintaining those lawns, you know, and, I've been uh, reading up, kind of refreshing my memory on a lot of the statistics, and it's 800 million gallons a year are burned mowing lawns in America, and then another 17 million gallons are spilled. You know, every time you try to fill up your lawnmower and you spill some gas, well, that adds up to 17 million gallons a year, which is uh, <clears throat> which is like almost twice what the Exxon oil Valdez uh, Exxon Valdez oil spill was. So. <laughs> That, you know, we're all, everybody's all freaked out about these oil spills that are happening, but we're just repeating them, you know, again and again and again, every single year, you know. And then also there's there's the issue of land access, you know, the fact that, you know, 25% of our nation is living in poverty. That equates to about 40 million people. And I find it interesting that that's just about exactly how many acres of land are in the lawn in America right now, 40 million acres. And so, you know, it's just, there's this huge disparity. And you know, lawns were actually invented by the French, 
um, I think in the 17th century or 18th century, I can't remember, but they, um, you know, it was this sort of display to the peasants that they didn't need, that the wealthy didn't need to use all their land for agriculture, that they could have just these big lawns to go out and play croquet and, and uh, you know, have parties on. And they were sort of spitting in the face of the poor people saying like, well, you know, I know you guys would love to use this to grow food for yourselves, but, you know, it's ours and we don't need it for that. And in some ways, that's that's what the message that's sent in suburban America also, you know, I mean, these, they're surrounded by these cities that are full of people that really would love to have access to a tiny patch of that. And um, so, you know, I think that there's, as our, as our nation becomes more conscious and as we start to, I mean, there's, you can go just about anywhere now and even in uh, conservative uh, communities, you know, people are starting to dialogue about race and inequality and, um, and food and organics and, uh, and, so turning the lawns into food, or at least a portion of the lawns into food, giving community access to that, I think is just going to become a normal part of that. Just like, you know, 30, 40 years ago, it was considered okay to keep somebody from working for you because of their race or sexual preference. And now that's just completely not okay. I think that's what's going to happen with the lawns. Mm. So you mentioned a bunch of things about lawns themselves that are negatives, the noise, the pollution... Um, the the kind of gatedness of them. What's the other half of that, which is the, you know the the broken food system? How do you, how do you how do you critique the food system in America before we talk about fixing it through uh, a new kind of agriculture? Yeah. Oh God. Let me count the ways. You know. I mean, I think that the the main problem. That's such a huge question, Howard. But um, I, for me personally, the main problem with the food system in America is that there's not a lot of nutrition <laughs> in the mainstream food supply. You know, like what most people go, if you go down to, you know, your local neighborhood, I'm not even going to say the name of any local neighborhood chain because I don't want to give them the advertising, but, you know, go to that big chain that's not the health food store and walk up and down the aisles. When I go there, because, for example, I don't eat sugar or corn syrup, I don't eat any processed sugar at all. I'll eat fruit, you know, not obsessively, but, um, so if you're walking through those aisles and you're not trying to eat any refined sugar, you can't find anything to eat. You know, there's nothing on any shelf, you know, all of the, the salad dressing and the, everything that's in a can or a box or even stuff that's labeled natural, a lot of the organic food, it's just completely full of sugar which is, you know, essentially a white drug and does the same thing to your body as cocaine. So <clears throat> so that's that's one thing that's, to me, a major critique of the food system, you know, where the people are taking control of their food supply. They're not, you know, I mean, some of them are going out and buying bags of sugar, but a lot of, a lot of the sugar ends up leaving the diet once you start growing your own food. And then from there, you know, then there's all these health issues that, that change and get better because you're now not binging on sugar all day every day. So that's, that's a big thing. You know, there's the fast food, there's the soda, there's, I mean, it's just, this is our mainstream. This is the way America eats. And, you know, we're famous all over the world for being fat. And, uh, and I think that's kind of sad. I mean, it, it's just, I mean, it, from an individual basis, if you're, if you're famous in your community, if you're one person who's famous in your community for being obese, I mean, that's going to be something that doesn't sit well with you, probably, for the most part. You know, so here we are as a nation famous in our community for being obese. You know, what are we going to do about it? It's not really how we want to be. 
So, you know, I, I, there, there, are, there are food deserts where, you know, it's, it's literally impossible to find fresh produce where the, the only yeah. st- stores are the, you know, fast food or, uh, you know, gas station stores or taqueria. But um, for, for a lot of people that I know, who have the means, who have the space, they're still choosing fast food, soda, cans, bottles, yeah. packaged foods. Um, so it's, it's not simply a matter of access for those people. How, how, right. what, what, what are, I mean, t- let's talk about our, our, our relationship to the foods, to the food system and food supply and, and food and our bodies. Is there something, there's something missing there, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, it takes, like, when I decided to quit sugar, it was incredibly difficult, you know. I had, you know, been eating sugar on a daily basis since I was a small child. You know, I mean, it was it's in everything. If you start reading ingredients, you know, even stuff that says, you know, sugar-free, and you read the back, and it's, like, snuck some corn syrup in there, you know. and But uh, <clears throat> it's an incredibly addictive substance. And so, you know, it takes... It, a really uh, disciplined approach to, to eliminate it from the diet. And, you know, for me, I ended up seeing a hypnotherapist help me kick it because it was so hard, you know. And then, but like any addiction, once you sort of step away from it and you get a little further along in your sobriety, your your resolve thickens, you know, and you get, you get stronger and you get more defiant of the substance because you feel better and you see that you were that you were its slaves, basically, you know, out there spending all your money on this food that is killing you, you know. And, uh, but I do, I do agree with you that it's not just access. And actually, one of the things that comes up for me is thinking about access. And, you know, you go to any food bank in America where a lot of, the, you know, sort of indigent families are going to get food, and that food is some of the most toxic stuff that you can possibly get. You know, that's, that's what the food bank supplies is some of the, the worst uh, nutritional quality stuff that is available, which is so, unfortunate. You know, a lot of the. What would we see if we, if we went to one of those food banks? What would what would we see people being served? You would see, um, you know, they get boxes of food. So you would see boxes of, uh, you know, you'd see top ramen, you know, which is loaded with MSG and sugar. You would see uh, boxes of like craft foods, you know. There, uh, I went and named a company. Um, you would see, you know, cans of soup, you know, I mean, if you, if you picked up food out of those boxes and started looking at the back of, you know, reading the ingredients, you would see pretty much all, uh, chemicals, filler, colors, sugar, um, you know, GMOs, soy products, corn. I mean, it's just crap, you know, and, and so then these families are eating this stuff and everybody's depressed and everybody's overweight and, you know, there's um, there's a real problem problem with that. You know, but I think the more you know, again to tie it back to food not lawns. You know, the more people who are growing food at home, the more surplus they're generating. Anybody who's ever planted a zucchini seed understands the notion of surplus uh, produce. <laughs> and uh, you know, and if, if as we're creating localized systems, neighborhood-based systems, friendship-based communities where people are uh, sharing the surplus out into the community then, you know, if, if you go to a food bank in, like, a town, like, I'm currently in Northern California, and if you go to the Arcata Food Bank, which is a very, um, you know, it's a very hip town, they're a very progressive community, um, you go to the food bank there, and the box is full of organic produce. 
so that's that tells me that that there's a there's a chance you know for us to to get into you know the mainstream as with this type of stuff and to be able to get these people fed in ways that are healthy. So um, one of the thing that, that really struck me the hardest when I was reading Food Not Lawns is you kind of opened my eyes in a way I haven't thought about in a long time to the lives and um, health um, conditions of farm workers. So, so I'm thinking here I am um, with you know, plenty of access to all the, any kind of food I could want. Um, I'm educated about nutrition. I am not addicted to sugar for the most part. I eat produce, you know, lots and lots of stuff. I can get it at Whole Foods. I can I can get the the, the high end stuff, and and yet there is an entire section of the population that is suffering, so that I can get that produce. Yeah. Talk about the link between you know me not growing my own food, me having a lawn here, and getting my um, non-organic produce from the supermarket, and what I don't see. Right. Yeah. Well, there are. You know, if you just type in uh, the other day, you know, when we were corresponding about this, I typed in uh, farm worker miscarriages into a Google search and got a lot of really interesting reports, you know, studies conducted by Cornell and Duke University, you know, people really looking at uh, the the health issues related to these farm workers. Because you think about it, they're out in the field and, you know, these their fields are being sprayed with airplanes, with pesticides. I mean, anybody I know would not like that. <laughs> you know, I don't know anybody who wants a, a plane to fly over their head and just dump poison on them. You know, and they're, you know, they're dying. They're getting cancer. Their babies are dying. They're, you know, they're having, uh, you know, major heart problems and lung problems and skin problems. And, you know, it's a, it's a really big deal. I mean, it, it's definitely a social justice issue. It's not just an environmental issue. You know, I mean, and like any uh, of these issues that we talk about, there's so much crossover. There's really no such thing as a single issue politics, you know, but uh, that's, you know, that's a really big deal. And that's a, you know, another sort of huge conversation that we could have about it, you know, and there's all these issues around immigration and, you know, what are, how are we, how are we treating these people that are coming to our country and, uh, and trying to sort of make a better life for their families, you know, then you go into an organic farm and a lot of the larger organic farms are, uh, you know, are hiring people of color, um, and they are doing good work and they're out in the field and they enjoy it and they're not being, poisoned and uh, and there's you know it's jobs and it's it's working you know i mean a lot of the small i have to say that a lot of the smaller organic farms i mean what makes them possible is that they're subsidized by the labor of the workers you know and people tend to complain about the cost of organic food but you know i ran an organic farm outside of eugene for eight years and uh, you know we didn't make any money <laughs> you know it's it's not a profitable venture you know it's a, it's a labor of love it's a, it's a life choice <laughs> Right. So one of the things that got me into gardening in the first place, and this would have been in actually like May of 2012 is when the light bulb went on. And it was because I, I accidentally read a book um, that I hadn't planned to read. I wasn't interested in reading. The title meant nothing to me. And somehow, like fate decreed that it should land in my lap. And I should have nothing else to read. And it was um, the book by the um, person who wrote the foreword to Food Not Lawns, Toby Hemingway. It was Gaia's Garden. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Great book. 
it was an incredible book. And I was at I was at a place at that point in my life where I had no access to a garden. And we were it was our last month and a half living abroad in South Africa. So I was just sort of there with this book uh-huh. with, with nothing to do about it. But what I got from it is this this kind of notion that pretty much all of the world's problems could be solved in the gardens that Toby was describing. And I and I yeah. and I see that in Food Not Lawns as well. So we've talked a lot about the issues, the problems with the food supply, with with migrant workers health, with uh, with poverty and, and injustice issues. So how does a, a movement of Food Not Lawns address this? And first of all, maybe maybe talk about what Food Not Lawns is and what it's uh, doing. Yeah, well, um, Toby Hemingway was one of my first uh, permaculture teachers. Uh, you know, went through the gardening for a while. We started getting into permaculture and went and took some classes with him. And we actually got a, a grant from the city of Eugene to bring Toby and um, and Jude Hobbs, another wonderful permaculture teacher, to our community. And we did this permaculture course for the whole neighborhood. And uh, and he um, he combined with some other people really turned us on to the idea of paradise gardening. Um, and that, that term, that phrase I think was coined by a guy named Joe Hollis who has this uh, seed garden on the East coast. And, um, and that just thinking about paradise gardening, that really, you know, brings up a lot of ideas around, you know, what can we do to, to return the earth to this, this place that perhaps, you know, this, this sort of biblical splendor of us just being out in the garden and just being part of the community there. We're not dominating it. We're not, uh, we're not using it to get rich. We're just, you know, we're participating in it in this, this, um, symbiotic way. And, um, Okay, so what is Food Lawns and what does Food Lawns do? You know, that's that's a great question because you know, I think that with all the social media stuff that's happening, a lot of people are sort of misled to think that, oh, Food Lawns, yeah, I just I click like on this Facebook page and then I grow some stuff in my yard and, and I'm, I'm on board, you know, and I think that's great. But Food Lawns, you know, by definition, our mission is to, like it says in the book, help people turn yards into gardens and neighborhoods into communities, you know, and how we accomplish that is by just a few basic approaches as we, you know, we advocate and we educate, we help, um, you know, give people information where they need it, you know, or direct them in the right direction. We help them find access to surplus seeds, plants, land, uh, resources and knowledge. And, um, yeah, and we, we help each other turn yards into gardens and we share our, our resources with them. And, and, you know, we as the, as the national chapter, as the sort of overarching group, which is what I'm representing, um, you know, our goal is to help people connect with their local communities. You know, so somebody starts a chapter, they get in touch with me, I help them organize a community seed swap. That community seed swap brings people in and they start collaborating and saying, okay, well, I have a huge yard, you don't have a yard, so why don't you come over to my place and we can garden together and, you know, share what we grow or oh my God, I grew a million seeds last year and you don't have any seeds. Here's some of mine. Or here's this, you know, I have too many garden shovels. Do you need one? And and so this exchange starts to happen in the community. And I'm a real advocate of that being a friendship-based exchange. So when I go into a community and I teach a workshop, I really emphasize building friendships within that community so that people aren't just oh, we're activists together and we barely know each other. They're like, no, this is my friend that I really like spending time with and I'm going to meet them in the garden tomorrow and we're going to have a great time. 
So I think that's really important because that's what we do. That's what we're motivated by as humans is friendship. So that's, that's what we do. So what's uh, I was curious about the, uh, the the central nature of the seed swap to to the mm-hmm. gardening effort. When I think of gardening and when I think about it in my youth, is what you did is if you had your own garden, you went to the store and you bought some burpee seeds and you put them in the ground and they were you know they had great names, um, mm-hmm. they were marketed well and they had pretty pictures on the seed packets. And then the next year you went and you did the same thing and and the seeds was kind of mm-hmm. it wasn't very expensive. It was like a buck for a, a mm-hmm. big pack of seeds. Why seed swapping as, as a central yeah. feature? Yeah, such a good question. Why seed swapping? Seed swapping, I, I lately just put something on the website. Seed swaps are the benchmark of our movement because it is such an important thing. And, you know, I mean, yeah, it's only a buck or two bucks for a pack of seeds, but, you know, you buy 30 packs, that adds up, you know, and a lot of people can't afford that. And also, where do those seeds come from? Um, you know, are they GMO seeds? Are they organic seeds? Are they heirloom seeds? Are they going to do well in your uh, particular microclimate? You know, so there's a chapter in my book on seed saving that sort of goes over the basics of how to save your own seeds. And and I think when once you start saving your own seeds, you have bags and bags. It's not just a packet of seeds. It's a bucket of seeds, you know, and, and you can't possibly grow them all yourself, you know, so you have to go out. And a seed swap in particular as an event tends to bring in a really diverse group of people. So they become this this demonstration not just of biological diversity with all the different kinds of seeds that are on the table, but of a cultural diversity because you get people who don't self-identify as activists in any way come to the seed swap and now they're interacting with, you know, there's all these like anarchist kids and then there's seniors from the local senior center who are just growing their grandma's favorite uh, potato and, you know, there's there's this huge diversity across the community that of people who come to the seed swaps, and that really can help expand the movement in it in a way that most events won't do, you know. And so I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, that's yeah, because it's I'm sure that I could go on and on about seed swaps. <laughs> it's kind of weird because I think about seeds in a, a little bit the way I think about capital. Right. It's something that you can then grow mm-hmm. your your wealth with. But it, and you mentioned, you know, the zucchini and mm-hmm. understanding the surplus. There's a kind of surplus in nature when it happens that is very confusing to capitalists because right? it doesn't yeah. it, it, it. You can't bank it. You right. can, but you can. Well, you you can bank it in your neighbor's you know yards and stomachs. You can't you, you can't keep it for yourself. It. It, it rots. Right. It loses value unless it's in movement. It does. Unless kind, you share it. It's, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of the opposite of how we think about a, a capitalist great. economy. Yeah. So it's it's very subversive. You know, growing seed in, is this subtle subversion, you know, and actually there are whole cultures, huge cultures in South America and in Africa where seeds are their capital. That's what they use to, to buy things with. And and there's a reason for that because seeds are actually have real value, whereas you know money we've created the system where you know these paper rectangles that we pass around have value, but you know a seed has intrinsic value, and that's that's amazing. And and it's true that if you just grow 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 seed and you hoard it all for yourself, five years later you open up that box and those seeds aren't going to sprout. 
you know, a lot of them. And, you know, every every year that you hoard them, the value goes down. But, you know, the conservation of biodiversity is is dictated by, you know, the fact that the more you succeed, the more work there is to do, basically. So the more seeds you grow, the more seeds you have to grow because now you have all these wonderful varieties of tomatoes. You know, a few years ago, I went to go renew our tomato collection and I pulled out all the different kinds of tomatoes that we collected over the years. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, and I planted them. You know, I, I ended up choosing a hundred different kinds of tomatoes and grew them all out. And some of those seeds were very old and I was only getting like a 10% germination rate. So it was really good that I was growing them again. And so then at the end of the year, I had a hundred different kinds of tomato seeds I had grown and saved. And then I was like, oh no, now I have to grow a hundred different kinds of tomatoes every year, you know, which is not necessarily true because I was able to give those away to different people that were going to grow them. And, you know, and they do last, a tomato seed will last, you know, 10 or 20 years in the packet. You know, different seeds have different lengths of time that they'll survive, you know, but, um, but that's the thing is that, you know, it sort of sucks you in, but in this beautiful subversive way where, where you, you don't realize that you've now, you know, sort of transcended a lot of the capitalist culture and, and you're just, all you really care about is your garden and your seeds and hopefully you can get the rent paid. I mean, there's a big piece of the puzzle that, you know, we still have to kind of factor in if, you know, at, and that goes back to what you and I were talking about at the very beginning of this conversation. It's like we, we do still live in a capitalist culture, and how does one make ends meet? That's something that's on, that I'm dealing with personally. And I guess that might be a good time to bring up the fact that we're doing this Kickstarter campaign. Um, it is launching in a couple of – yeah, I guess by the time you air, we will have just launched the, the Kickstarter campaign. And um, – and that's on, you know, kickstarter.com, food, not lawns. And I'm uh, raising funds to go around the country visiting uh, communities that have food, not lawns chapters and also other communities who invite me and uh, conducting workshops, teaching people how to do this in their community, how to organize seed swaps, if they want to learn how to garden or how to how to design something for the front yard that is beautiful so that the neighbors don't complain. Um, you know, I'm also training groups on how to work with each other, how to facilitate a collective process. Process. And um, and we've got, you know, with the, in the Kickstarter spirit, you know, you have these rewards. So people give you a donation, you send them a reward. So we're offering T-shirts and stickers. We've got this brand new official Food Not Lawns logo, which I hand-drew the beat and then worked with this wonderful graphic designer to, to create this beautiful logo. And so we're, um, you know, we're doing merchandise. And then I'm also um, recording an audio handbook, I'm calling it. It's about three hours long, and it's based on my book, Food Not Lawns, but it's sort of this uh, micro, this completely abridged version of me just going through the really practical how-to stuff. And, uh, and there will be 50 different little three- to five-minute tracks. Um, my idea is that people can just put the headphones on and go out into the garden and listen to me talking about mulching and seed saving and trellising and pruning and, and, uh, and then also a lot of those, um, a lot of that handbook will be about working community organizing events and getting the word out. So, um, so that, that audio handbook will also be one of the rewards on Kickstarter. And, um, yeah, I'm really hoping that that comes off because if we reach our goal, which is ten thousand dollars, then I will um, then I'll be able to go on this international tour of the United States, Canada, and the UK, and connect with these food not lost chapters. And there's also food not lost chapters in Australia, but um, we haven't quite <laughs> haven't quite got to the Australian tour part of the puzzle yet. And then also in connection with that, um, there's been this amazing network. Um, just lately, I've been 
I've really kind of always resisted social media, but just the last couple of months, I've been kind of getting on board and really trying to do some outreach and I've been connecting with the, the leaders of all these local chapters. And we were creating this network and starting to collaborate on having um, a convergence so where we, we bring people together and we have this international convergence in 2016 where um, people can come from all over and we can share information and have a giant seat swap. And, and then hopefully at the end of the weekend, we'll go out to some neighborhood nearby and just rip up the lawn and turn it into a garden. Wow. So that'll be fun. So it sounds like, you know, sort of t- 20, 15 years ago, 16 years ago now, you you and a bunch of folks had this idea and you've had many, many years of trial and error of growing lawns that of growing food on lawns that maybe were a little bit scraggly and wild of dealing with neighbors of dealing with um, the, the waste stream of getting community resources together of figuring out the best way to set something up quickly and cheaply. So I'm guessing that you you and your cohort have made zillions and zillions of mistakes and corrections. And you're at a place where um, you've taken the best of the best and you, you can now help uh, communities get set up and running without, you know, with yeah. without having to make all your mistakes. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I mean, I'm still making mistakes all the time. Like I sent out a press release yesterday with a broken link on it, which is terrible. But, um, you know, whatever. Everybody makes mistakes. But I I, um, I appreciate your vote of confidence. And I think that that is largely true, you know, that, that um, I'm, it's kind of like the, it goes back to the distributing the surplus, like that like that extra zucchini, you know, I now have all this, all this extra information um, from what I've learned and done. And, and I'm really excited to, to share that and to help distribute that so that then the next, the next round of people can avoid making some of the mistakes that we made either in the garden or in the community. And, uh, and, you know, we can just become exponentially more effective. Yeah. What, one of the most beautiful things that you wrote in the book from, from my perspective was, um, you know, we have a society that worships exponential growth. And you said, can, can we replace exponential growth with exponential learning? And we worship accumulated wealth. And you said, can we replace accumulated wealth with accumulated wisdom? And can you talk a little bit about the kind of society that you envision that values learning and wisdom over growth and wealth? Oh, wow. Um, I love that, that you read my book before the interview. That's rare and awesome. But, um, yeah, exponential learning versus exponential growth. I think, well, you know, exponential growth is this idea that you, it's kind of like the pyramid marketing thing or something, you know, like you have this idea and then you turn it into this franchise and then, you know, you make money and then everybody makes money and then everybody who works in and makes money and it's all about money, money, money. And, um, and so with Food Lawns, we're kind of doing the same thing. I mean, we kind of are franchising it, but not with this monetary goal. You know, it's with this like, okay, well, I'm learning this stuff, and I shared this information with my community, and then they went out and they shared this information with their community, and then et cetera. And, um, and so, I mean, we're watching it happen with this Food Not Lawns meme, you know, that has totally taken off. And, and I'm getting letters all the time from people who are like, wow, I've – you know, I wrote Food Not Lawns on my folder at school, you know, seven years ago. And then I just realized that you have this book, you know, and, and that's so great. 
And I'm like, well, didn't you Google it? <laughs> you know, but on the other hand, you know, it's 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 bleeding into the mass consciousness, you know, where pe- people are just naturally now looking at a lawn and thinking, you know, that should have food on it. And without ever actually, you know, realizing where they got exposed to the idea or or maybe they, they just thought of it right then, you know, because it's that's how a meme works is it sort of bleeds into the consciousness in this way that just becomes more obvious to people. You know, and, and if we can take those people that are now agreeing with the idea and give them the actual hands-on information, you know, and help them realize, you know, that they that they know how to do this. It's not just an idea because I am also getting lots of letters from people who are like, oh, I would love to grow food on lawns, but my neighborhood association won't let me. So anyway, moving on to the next topic, uh-huh. you know, and, and I really want those people to feel empowered and to be like, well, you, you know, you own that property. Like you, you know, you're one of the fortunate people who actually owns a piece of property in America. Like, isn't it your constitutional right to do what you want with it? You know, I mean, you can fight that neighborhood association. You can change these rules. One of the things you you keep writing in the book is, you know, around different topics. Well, this is probably illegal. So, you know, and then (laughs) here's how to do it, which which, which I love. I I assume you didn't have a lawyer. Uh, No, I do now. Uh, But um, no, I mean, but also, I mean, it used to be illegal to, to ride at the front of the bus if you were black. I mean, that's. Nobody, they didn't just accept that, you know, like, oh, well, it's illegal. You know, it's like, no, that's, there's a lot of things that have, it used to be illegal to get married if you were gay or to grow marijuana or, you know, I mean, we could go on and on of just things that have, you know, that, you know, 50 years ago or even 15 years ago were completely vilified in culture and are now, you know, now we're just ashamed of the culture that we ever vilified that thing. Mm. You know, so, so, what, what, yeah, one of the things you write right at the beginning that kind of punched me in the face was self-reliance is a radical stance. And I think through this conversation, people who are listening closely can hear that take, taking your lawn and growing food on it is more than just, you know, supplementing your, your groceries. Um, but how, how radical is it? Well, it's as radical as you want to make it. You know, I think that um, everybody has to sort of decide for themselves with that, you know, I mean, how, how evangelical they want to be about it or how, you know, defined in their community. I mean, people can just have a nice little beautiful garden and mostly just stay home and have it be that. And yeah, that's not going to be super radical. And, you, know, you can sort of bite off as much of the radical pie as, as you feel comfortable with in the moment, you know, but maybe next year you'll decide, well, actually I want to host a little, uh, host a little event in my front yard. You know, and the neighbors will be like, oh, what's going on over there? You know, or you think, oh, actually, I think I'm going to put a big sign out there that says food, not lawns. See how people react to that, you know, or I mean, there's, you know, or you can take all your seeds down to the, the city hall and, you know, host a seed swap on the steps, you know, and, and then see if the crops show up because they might actually. And, you know, there's, there's, you can take it as far as you want to go, you know, and, yeah, I'm, I'm also wondering sort of how, how radical is it in and of itself, even if like what happens to our world when 40 million Americans convert their lawns to gardens? Yeah, like, um, even, even, even if they're, you know, as conservative as can be and they have no interest, like what what just sort of naturally what's the cascading effect of that kind of simple, you know, literally homegrown activism? What, what happens to the world? Yeah. 
it's hard to say. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I can't I can't necessarily predict it, but I can imagine. Well, you know, I mean, first I mean, of all, the landscape changes. Yeah, I mean, you're doing it for a reason. So what's what's your you know your uh, wave a magic wand vision of how our society <laughs> changes through through your efforts? And yeah, the efforts of millions of others. Well, I think that it comes down to that sense of empowerment for me, you know, and that's what I think about is that, that feeling of like, I, I have control over my food supply. I'm, I, I have control over uh, my environment that I live in, you know, and, uh, and I'm, I'm choosing, I'm making choices. I'm not just getting up in the morning and going to the job that I sort of fell into because it was the, the job that I could get when I really needed money. And then I'm paying this mortgage at this interest rate that I just sort of accepted. And I'm paying off these student loans that are really a burden. And I have to pay this health insurance now. And, you know, that, that feeling of like not really being able to choose, you know, it's like you should do all these things that you have to do. You know, but growing food in the front yard is something that you choose. And you're like, no, I'm choosing this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make time for this, and I'm going to make it happen. And that creates this sort of can-do feeling in, in yourself. And it really is a physical sensation of empowerment um, and an emotional uh, sensation. And so I think that, um, you know, I, I think it's actually really important to notice the physical aspect of it because, you know, gardening makes you healthier and it, you're moving your body. And, and, you know, we are these, our bodies and minds are totally connected and, and I think once we really are engaging our bodies, not just talking about growing food, not lawns, or, you know, Facebooking about growing food, not lawns, but actually going out and doing it, that, uh, you know, you sort of have to do it for yourself to, to really understand the physical experience of empowerment in that way, you know. And it, imagining 40 million people or, you know, 100 million people doing it in America, it's, um, you know, imagine that many people really feeling that physical empowerment. And you can, you can see it on someone walking down the street. You can really tell when someone feels like they have control over their lives. Yeah. So, uh, you know. It, it reminds me a little yeah. bit. So I have, I have a 19-year-old daughter. And a couple of years ago, she started going on survival trips with, uh, you know, a local guide. And they would learn one, one weekend how to survive without bringing fire making, another weekend without bringing food, another without shelter, without water. And then the weekends got more and more intense and they would be without two or three and finally all four of the things we think of as we need to survive. And I asked her afterward, you know, she comes home and she has a nice room in her nice house. Like, what, what was the impact of that on you? And she's like, well, it makes me feel like I don't need to get a job. Like I would never, I wouldn't just take a job just to have a job. I feel like I could survive. I could live in the mm -hmm. woods. I could get along. I learned how to, you know, dumpster dive, make right. a, make a, and I think that's part of this feeling of empowerment that may, may not even come with conscious radicalization that I don't need craft to, to, to mention them again. I don't need this, this right. the big supermarkets. I don't, I don't need to be dependent on someone else's food supply. You know, my like I have a new puppy. She's dependent on us to feed her. And, mm -hmm. and our relationship is defined by that to some extent. And I don't want to be the yeah. little puppy defined by my relationship to to big agriculture and and big food and big pesticide. Yeah, and I think most people don't want that. You know, and it's funny how a lot of our followers, a lot of the letters that I get and, the, you know, the followers that we have on the social media and stuff are uh, identify as being libertarians, which is this culture, you know, that we might even 
you know, some of those sort of leftist community might think are kind of conservative, you know, in some ways, or like, the, the, you know, tea, tea party people or whatever. But um, I almost said tea baggers, but I don't think that's what they call themselves. But uh, but they they really identify with the Food Not Lost idea because it has to do with doing what you want, you know, of just saying like, look, I, you know, this is my thing and I'm going to do it. And, uh, and I'm, I'm choosing this. And, and so just like with your daughter, like she's, she's also dependent, you know, has grown up dependent on you guys to feed her, but now she's realized that she's, that that's a false dependence, that she's choosing to be dependent, choosing to eat with you, whatever, but that she has the, the power, she knows that she has the power to feed herself. And that's, that's huge, you know? And I think that there's a lot of, a lot of people, especially in America, but in countries all over the world, especially in some of the wealthier countries are, um, just a little bit blind to the fact that they do have the power. Yeah, and and that with a with the food not lawns ethos, it's possible to feed yourself without depriving or harming someone else. That this is this is the yeah. one, this is the one way in which you know resource sharing is not is not a uh, a zero sum game. That the more people who are doing it, the right. more, the more there's going to be. Yeah, you not just feed yourself, you can feed your whole neighborhood, you know, and and without really, it's not that much work. I mean, it, t- it takes work to maintain the lawn, you know, but when you're out there gardening, as you know, it sometimes it feels like, oh, God, I got to get this done. But most of the time, it doesn't really feel like work, not like sitting in an office feels like work or, or you know, swinging a sledgehammer feels like work. You know, it really, it feels like pleasure. And uh, and that's imagine you know a whole nation of people who are making their decisions based on pleasure, and uh, and not based on obligation. Right, it's, and you know, it's, it's fun to imagine. You know, I mean, it might be a little far off, but it's it's fun to imagine. You know, it's it's sort of a spiritual journey as much as it's a political one. Yeah, and I'm thinking about you know some of the research on longevity around the world, where you know. Some of the thing, the things that separate, you know, I'm thinking like a book like Blue Zones, which was the National Geographic um, explorations of the longest living cultures on Earth, and you know they all gardened, they all yep. ate they mostly, have no money, mostly <laughs> mostly plant food. They were outdoors a lot mm-hmm. and they had very strong community ties. Mhm. Yeah. Exactly. They laugh. Yeah, it's so interesting, you know, and I mean, to tie this back around to the sustainability issue, you know, I think that there's the Food Not Lawns movement is really connected to the sustainability movement. And, you know, and and the word longevity kind of makes me think about that. You know, it's like, oh, longevity, you know, our lives defined by, you know, how long we live or or how, you know, how long we can perpetuate the human race. You know, I think that that's, that's definitely something to think about, but I like to draw back more to the day-to-day quality of life. Like I would rather live to be, you know, 45 years old and know that every day was, was, was my choice, you know, that, that I chose the quality of life each day and I enjoyed it rather than live to be, you know, a hundred and, and just be enslaved the entire time. Well, I love that you wrote that, you know, sustain like sustaining the human experiment on Earth, like for its own sake, doesn't doesn't really thrill you. It reminds me of something I heard Toby Hemingway say at um, at a talk at Duke University. He says, you know, let's think about the word sustainability. Someone says, oh, how's your marriage? You go, oh, it's just it's sustainable. Sustainable. <laughs> yeah. Is that the exactly. best we can do? Wow. Inspiring. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, and the human species, I mean, we are a natural species on Earth. And, you know, if you look at the at the, the facts, you know, you look at the science, you know, all species do eventually go extinct. And I think that's something a lot of people don't want to acknowledge or or, or talk about, you know. And one thing that, I, that I've said a few times in, in uh, you know, when I'm teaching is that, you know, that I, I feel like the pursuit of sustainability is kind of like the pursuit of God. Or, you know, it's uh, it has to do with what happens when you're dead, you know, like, uh, you know, sustainability. You're thinking about future generations, you know, surviving uh, in perpetuity, you know, just like if you're pursuing salvation, you're thinking about what happens to your soul after you die, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and while those are both, you know, can be wonderful pursuits that can be really fulfilling for an individual, I think it's really important to bring it back to the present also of just like, you know, am I doing this for future generations? Like, what's going on with me today? What am I going to do? Am I enjoying this? It's, is the strawberry tasting delicious? What's going on right now? And that sort of takes us off the moral high ground and, and essentially gets us out into the garden. And I think that, for me, that's really much more motivating than this sort of big picture sustainability stuff, which is so intangible mm. and, and perhaps impossible. <laughs> Well, so let's let's uh, let's recap about this Kickstarter campaign. So, if, uh, okay. if so, you and maybe one or two other people will be traveling around, um, kind of re either forming or re-energizing or providing guidance to communities all across the U.S. and uh, and U.K. I think you also. Yeah, the United States, Canada, and the UK. Well, that's where we have chapters. And so I'm corresponding with them. And, you know, we're booking the entire tour through the Kickstarter campaign. So um, so we launch the campaign in a couple of days, and then it goes for a month. And, uh, you know, how Kickstarter works is that if you don't reach your goal, our goal is $10,000. So if we don't reach our goal, then we don't get any of the money. So, you know, we're just really asking people to support us, even with, you know, five bucks. If you give us five bucks, you get a sticker and a little thank you note, you know. And if you give us 500 bucks, then you can get uh, then you can get a workshop happening in your community. And that all includes travel expenses, except not to the international locations, because we have to sort of figure that out travel-wise. But uh, that's, um, that's how we set it up, you know. And there's all this, this whole range in between. There's like food not launch starter kits. People can get, you know, a yard sign and a couple of T-shirts and some stickers, and they can just have their own little food not launch thing happening. And um, that's yeah, that's what's happening. We're raising money to do this tour, and then also some of the funding from the Kickstarter, a very small amount of it, is going to go to help launch a podcast. Um, like this one, uh, where we want to start a, a regular Food Not Launch podcast. So while I'm out on tour, I want to interview these local movers and shakers and gardeners and uh, and talk to them about what they're doing in their community and then just have these regular, uh, like probably a weekly podcast that, uh, you know, goes out to the whole world of people talking about Food Not Launch. Awesome. Well, you know, as, as we speak, um, there's a Kickstarter campaign called Exploding Kittens, which has raised uh, over $8 million with six hours to Isn't go. Isn't that crazy? So. <laughs> <laughs> For a card game about exploding kittens. I know. I saw that and I was like, I'm in the wrong business. <laughs> what is going on? 
well, that would be great. If we can raise $8 million, we can change the world in a big way. You know, I mean, I'm hoping, I would love to see this Kickstarter campaign really blow up because uh, if it does and we and we do get a substantial amount of funding like that, then what we're going to do is create um, a legal advocacy uh organization where basically a food not laws thing where uh you know where people who are struggling with their city or with their neighbors association over the right to grow food can then access legal support and uh and real you know concrete information that they can use to defend their gardens so uh, so that's you know that would be the next kind of way that we would grow if we got a really substantial amount of funding wow. and, that, and that's huge because the people who have done that successfully in one have tended to be people who don't mind confrontation and who like to be in the limelight, who like, you know, who, who yeah. or at least who don't mind being very public about it. I'm thinking about, you know, Ron Finley um, in, yeah. in in L.A. and and other folks. I love Ron Finley. Oh, don't we all? Yeah. Um, you know, so, you know, for folks who who want to do this thing, but don't necessarily want to put themselves in the public eye and in crosshairs. Um, that's so wonderful yeah. that there that there would be these resources that could that could help them without turning them into uh, fighters. Yeah, and I think also too, if we created like a central group where you know we're doing this advocacy, we're known for that. You know, we have connections with you know. I mean, I hate to get too far into the political mainstream, but we would you know have lawyers and and lobbyists and you know people who are kind of keeping their thumb on the pulse of the, of the national law. You know, to to. Once we start creating precedents and we have this unified group, then it's going to be harder and harder and harder for cities to, you know, change their zoning to make it so that people can't grow vegetables or, or for neighborhood associations to enforce their, their rules because there will be so many precedents that, that they weren't able to do that, you know. Right. And you know but that's, mean, you know, that's a couple of years down the road unless we get a million dollars on, uh, on Kickstarter and then we'll do it next week. <laughs> very good. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, in a sense, just like gardening, you know, you put the seed in the ground and you just kind of get out of the way and it grows. You know, we're going to be growing mm -hmm. our own food in this country in the next 20 to 50 years. It's going to be grown on a neighborhood by neighborhood local basis just because we have yep. an unsustainable, you know, energy system and food system. And the question is, yep. are we going to be ready for it? Are we going to, is it going to be a graceful transition or, a, you know, a, an apocalypse? And I think what one of the yeah. one of the things you're doing is giving people the tools so that it becomes a positive future rather than some some desperate, you know, survival. Yeah, I agree. I think I mean I would like to hope that, you know, not it's not just us giving them the tools, but people are giving themselves the tools. You know, people are, are reaching out and they're you know, they're willing to, to try this stuff. And, you know, I um like I mentioned to you, I think earlier, but in an email, but, uh, you know, my, I see my job is not just, is not as convincing people that this stuff is a good idea, but to be here for them when they make that decision on their own and to be, the, to be here to help them if they, if and when they're ready to take control of their food supply and, and start growing it. Right. So just, um, you know, we didn't talk about the details in uh, in the book about actually, you know, setting up your garden, but that's all in there. So pe people can still get copies of Food Not Lawns. Um, one of the nice yeah. things about a 10 year old book about gardening is that almost nothing is out of date. <laughs> you know, to make yeah, I know. I was looking them. at it. 
<laughs> um, there are some stuff, you know, the resources section needs to be revised. There's a few things in there that are out of date. Um, um, you know, like when I first printed the book, there were 25 million acres of lawn, and now there's 40 million acres of lawn, which is kind of sad, especially considering how much the movement has grown. But, um, you know, there's there's so many issues tied in with that. But actually, since you mentioned that, uh, we're working on a new revised edition of Food Not Lawns that will come out next year for the for the 10-year uh, anniversary. It would come out, you know, six months before the 10-year anniversary. So that's um, that's in the works. I've been talking to the publishing company about that. Or perhaps uh, we might do a, a companion manual, like a Food Not Lawns workbook that is really focused on these practical applications, you know. Yeah, and as far as gardening books goes, I mean, my book is a really nice overview of gardening, but it's not all in there, you know. And I think that Toby Hemaway's book, Guy's Garden, is a really wonderful companion. Uh, I think that the two really work together really well. And I've, I've gotten feedback from, from readers of those two books being really nice together. Yep. And, and uh, you know, you can go as far as you want, but it's really, really easy to start. Yep. I know. I, I would say just plant a peach tree. One peach and one fig. Just go down to the nursery, get yourself two trees, spend 20 bucks, take them home, stick them in the ground. Because once you get peaches and figs, you are not going to be able to stop going out there to the garden. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's sort of, those are the gateway drugs, you know, to the, to the food not lawns experience. That's right. So it's a very easy way to give yourself a raise. No matter what you're doing, you, yeah. you're, you're, uh, yeah. your quality of life goes up when you're eating your, your own peaches and figs. Yeah, or if you think you have a black thumb and you can't grow anything, get a plum tree because you have to try to kill those things. <laughs> it's the easiest thing in the world to grow. Good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that because we put a Chickasaw in in the late fall, and it, right right now it just looks like uh, a, a stick. So I, I, oh, I, hope, I hope it comes back good in the, in the spring. Just water it. It'll be fine. <laughs> All right. So, so again, it's I'm at kickstarter.com and just slash Food Not Lawns or search for Food Not Lawns on Kickstarter. Yeah, just search for Food Not Lawns. Um, they give us some weird like URL with all these weird numbers on it, you know. But the main thing is to just, or you can just go to our website, foodnotlawns.org, and we'll have a link to the Kickstarter campaign there. And that's a great website to just check out. There's articles about how to organize a seed swap and how to start a local chapter and lots of great links. And we have a blog that has a lot of really good links on it and sort of inspiring before and after pictures. And, um, and then on our Facebook, which is Food Not Lawns, um, I guess I should note that Facebook, um, the Facebook page that is Grow Food Not Lawns is actually not us. And um, that's sort of a whole other story, but those guys are, um, we're not affiliated with that. But um, So just Facebook, just regular Food Not Lawns without the grow in front of it. And um, yeah, same thing with the website, just Food Not Lawns. All right. Well, so uh, let's let's get the word out there. Everyone who's listening, please, you know, dig, dig as deep as you can. I can't think of a more important um, place to to put our our mouths and our monies, our resources and our, and our attention. This really is a whatever whatever issues you care about in the world. Um, this is going to make it better. And it's it's kind of fun. It's kind of fundamental to everything, you know. Um, as we said, you know, my, my wife has said that around the, the sort of food justice issue and, and food self-reliance is, you know, you can um, you can fight all you want against the system. But 
if you're eating the food from the system, it's like running away from home and then coming home for three meals a day. You know, right. you're, you're, yeah. not, you're not you're you're unable to assert true independence. So this is this is really fundamental uh-huh. to every change that um, caring people want to make in the world. Yeah, thank you so much. So Heather, it was, it was it's true. Yeah, it, it's it's such an honor <laughs> to get to talk to you um, after you know, <laughs> hearing about this and reading about it, and and you know you're so gracious to respond to my request for an interview. So I. Um, I hope people listening will uh, will dig deep. I hope you end up getting to uh, to my community out here in uh, in the Piedmont of North Carolina, and I hope that people all, all over Canada, U.S., U.K., and and uh, once we raise millions all over the world, will get the benefit of of your journey, of your passion, of your wisdom. So, Heather, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you, Howard, and I love North Carolina. I would love to come there. Awesome. So, uh, I, yeah, yeah. Oh, actually, I should mention. I, you can maybe you can edit this back over or something. But Joe Hollis, who I mentioned, who coined Paradise Gardening, his his farm is in North Carolina, just outside of Asheville. Okay. So, um, so anybody, you can Google Joe Hollis, North Carolina, and find his place and go out and visit. And I really recommend it for anybody who's interested in seed saving or Paradise Gardening. It is an extraordinary place. Awesome. All right. Well, as soon as the road's clear, I'll consider a trip to the mountains. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much, Howard. Sure thing. Be well. You too. Take care. I really hope you enjoyed that interview with Heather Joe. I hope you were inspired. I hope it got you to think. And of course, I hope you'll go to Kickstarter and make a contribution to this amazing cause that is so dear to my heart. I'm recording this on Friday afternoon, 4 p.m. Eastern Time. And last time I checked, the uh, Kickstarter campaign already had 13 um, backers. Oh, now it's up to 14 backers, $411. They're looking for 10000 and ideally, let's get them a million. You know, if uh, exploding kittens can get $8 million, I think we can spare a million to save the planet. So again, that link is on the Plant Yourself website, plantyourself.com, just below in the show notes for this recording. And you can also go to Kickstarter and just do a search for Food Not Lawns. So um, upcoming shows... We have another Heather, two Heathers in a row. That's kind of unusual. Next week, Heather Crosby's talking about Yum Universe. And she has changed the way we do salads. I would say after talking to her, I now consume about a pound and a half more raw vegetables per day than I was before. And I was pretty good before. And she's with with these simple little hacks. You can almost call them like food hacks. Uh, she has helped me and my family eat a lot better, a lot healthier, a lot easier, a lot more conveniently, and actually quite a bit cheaper. So I urge you to um, tune into that episode as well. And if you'd like to help out the Plant Yourself podcast, help us spread the word a bunch of ways. One is to leave a review on iTunes, five stars and a few words to help other folks who should be listening find it. Of course, we encourage sharing on social media, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, Friendster, uh, whatever else you might be using, MySpace. Um, Also, if you want to uh, throw some cash our way, donations are always helpful to pay for uh, podcast hosting and uh, to help me uh, 
make the show as great as I can. I'm actually collecting uh, to hire a graphic artist to do the um, iTunes logo so we don't just end up with uh, with the WordPress logo that I have now. So that's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>